Good morning and welcome once again to St. Peter's Fireside. Uh, my name is Rob Collis and I'm on our pastoral team and apparently I'm one of our liturgy nerds along with Richard and Phil. Uh, and actually my wife pointed out to me uh, a few weeks back, Phil and I have been starting to dress a lot alike. And I've slowly kind of noticed that, but then this morning like, I put this on, which I would never have worn before Phil worked here. And then he shows up, and if you haven't seen him yet, he's wearing like a really similar outfit, just he's got like a maroon shirt instead. And we're both, I, th I think he's in Blundstones too. We're, we're, we're merging and becoming one. Uh, and I don't know what to make of that. Um, but we are your lit resident liturgy nerds, and we would love to talk with you about liturgy and just about faith or anything else. If, um, even if like, I know our coffee service has been canceled, if you want to meet with a pastor and get a coffee, let us know. Reach out to me, Lloyd, Phil, Richard. We'd love to get a coffee and, and meet with you and just chat about what's going on in your life too. Uh, all that being said, um, sermon time now. Uh, a little while ago, our staff team met with a consultant named Gregory. A, a few of you, many of you have probably um, seen Gregory, met him. He's been around us, our church for a little while lately. Um, and while he was with us during this time, he shared a story about a man. Uh, this man had just bought a plot of land um, I think it was meant to be in Africa in the story. I don't think that matters too much. But on this land, there was, there was a river cutting through his property. And he loved this property he had just bought. And he was surveying it and trying to think, like, where can I build a house? And as he explored this land, this property he owned, he found the perfect place to build a house. But there was one problem. The river was exactly where he wanted to build. And so he scratched his head and said, okay, well, I need some help here. And he found two experts to come in and, and look at the property with him. Uh, and the first expert came in, and he was used to sort of landscape architecture kind of things, and he looks around at the land and says, okay, well, this is what we can do. We can dig a massive channel to physically move this river, and we can divert the path of the river to go a completely different way so that then you can build your house exactly where you want it. And the man hears this, and he's nodding. He's like, okay, that sounds like an interesting idea. Um, it sounds like it'll be quite a lot of effort, but, but okay. And he turns to this other guy, and th this other expert's just been there kind of quiet the whole time, just looking around, just kind of surveying the land, just quietly. And he turns to him and says, well, what do you think of this, of, of moving this river? And he pauses, looks at him, and, and looks around again, and and he points at a boulder in the river. And he says, you know, if, if we just move that one boulder, I think that'll do the trick. And the guy's like, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, that boulder there, if we just move it like a few feet, the river will find a new path to flow through. And actually, I think it's going to find the original path. I think it, it changed its course. And if we move just that one little boulder, I think you'll be able to build your house exactly where you want it because the river won't need to flow there anymore. As I share that story, I want you to hold on to that, because uh, we'll come back to, to this idea of the boulder at the end of our, our time together. But as a church, we've been on a journey. Uh, we've been on a journey through the book of Philippians. And when we began our journey, we took some time to, to catch our breath, as we remembered that together we're caught up in the story of grace. And then for the last number of weeks, we've been exploring how this letter to a church from a long time ago speaks to our own church here today a modern 21st century church in Vancouver, and how it speaks to our values as a church. A number of years ago, we went through a season of identifying five core values. And over the last number of weeks, we've been talking about those, under authority, default to prayer, interdependence. And today we're looking at the fourth one, integrated faith. 
And so this morning, I want to unpack what it means to have an integrated faith. And we'll use our passage that we just heard from Philippians 3 to, to guide us as we explore what an integrated faith is. And then with that in mind, I want to then identify two other ways that we tend to live out our faith. And finally, we'll, we'll consider how we can take a step closer to having an integrated faith. Can we do that? Yep. If you had nods, not many. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just press on. I'm, I'm assuming most of you were nodding in spirit without nodding your heads. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a physical Bible, you can go to Google and type in BibleGateway.com and illumine your, your face right now with the warm glow of Scripture. And if you don't want to do that, it's also going to be on the screen behind me. But in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, we read, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul writes, I want to know Christ. Knowing Christ, he says, is of surpassing worth. Nothing else compares. Now, Paul was a, a leader in the early church, but it, it came kind of like a, a change in career for him late in life. Before Paul ever started to follow Jesus, he had actually been one of the up-and-coming intellectual leaders of his day in Jerusalem. He had been educated at the best institutions, working with some of the most important teachers of his day. He knew the right people. He had the right credentials, and, and everything was going well for him. Everything was on track for him to become someone in Jerusalem. And he knew what that was like, but he, he threw it all away. And he threw it away not, not because it all got to his head, and not because the pressure of potential fame just was crippling to him. He, he threw it all away after he encountered the risen Jesus. Because when he encountered Jesus, he found everything he'd been working towards was just worthless in compare. He said it was all like garbage. Paul wanted to know Jesus now. And he had made that his primary goal. But when he says no, he doesn't mean information. Often when we talk about knowledge today we, 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 and knowing something, we, we tend to have this idea of just trying to learn information about something like acquiring data, filling our heads with thoughts and ideas about a topic so that we can have a mastery over that field. And that's how much of our education system has been structured when we go to school now. We go to school to learn stuff, and, and that's really important. It's important for us to know things about this world that we live in. It's really important. But that's not the kind of knowing that Paul is talking about here. When he says, I want to know Christ, he uses this word gnosko. Gnosko. Just say that with me. Gnosko. Thank you. It was like gnosko. Uh, a little pattern waveform there. Uh, and this isn't just knowing something intellectually, but knowing something personally and experientially. It's to arrive at the knowledge of someone. It's the sort of knowing that I, I have for how I know my wife, Taya. I know her. I know what she's like. 
And sure, I know a lot of things about her too, but I know who she is. I know her character, her person, her longings and her desires, what brings her joy and what brings her sorrow. I know Taya. And you can know someone, you can gnosko someone without being married to them. It's, it's the way you know your best friends. It's the way you know some of your colleagues. It's the way you get to know someone but just by spending time with them, by going through life with them, arriving at the knowledge of someone who, who someone is because you've just spent that time with them. For us as Christians, part of having an integrated faith is, is knowing Jesus, gnosko Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus for having spent time with him, experiencing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. It's experiencing walking with him and being with him in every aspect of our lives. And then in every aspect of our lives, knowing that he is with us and he is seeping into every single part. But there's another thing that Paul writes about that I think pertains to having an integrated faith. He later goes on to talk about uh, this idea of citizenship. So he talks about wanting to know Christ, and then he talks about citizenship. And in verse 17, he says... Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and I'll tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that we are citizens of heaven. We have, an earth, we have a heavenly citizenship. Not an earthly one, a heavenly citizenship. And there were some people in their day in Philippi who, who were very strongly opposed to, to Christians in their faith. And they were opposing them on account of what they believed. And Paul calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul says that their minds are set on earthly things. But we are citizens of heaven. And I, I don't know about you, but I kind of find citizenship a bit of a loose concept in my life. If you can't tell, I'm not really from around here. Uh, actually, I used to live in the American South, and they really said, you ain't from around here, are you? It's like, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm a citizen of two different countries, the UK and the USA. And I've been living in a third country now for over seven years. And I'm married to a Canadian, and I've got a Canadian daughter. So I'm a dual national, double expat, which is kind of confusing for me sometimes. <laughs> and citizenship is kind of confusing for me. And maybe it is for some of us too. I know in this room right now, we come from all kinds of countries all over the world. Canada, yes, and America, yes, and, and England, and Scotland, South Africa. And I could keep going on. There's a lot of nationalities in this room, and it's beautiful. But above all of our nationalities and citizenships, though, as followers of Jesus, we are citizens of heaven. And that citizenship governs all of those. And notice how Paul contrasts Christians and those who oppose the gospel. In verse 18, he says, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. He says that Christians are citizens of heaven, but their opponents, these enemies of the cross, they have their minds set on earthly things. And the implication is that 
They belong to earthly citizenships. That, that their primary belonging is, is to these earthly places, and they live in light of that. That then informs how they live their lives. And in verse 19, he goes on to say, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. These people are living for the present, and they seem to be controlled by their own whims and desires. And when it says their God is their stomach, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were gluttons, but it seems to be this idea of being given over to all kinds of bodily desires. Their appetites and their desires in practice have become something which they worship. And Paul contrasts these people who belong to the world, who, who have this appetite for just whatever is before them. He contrasts them with Christians. And he says that we are citizens of heaven. And behind this is a declaration of where we belong to. And with that is also an implication for then how we are to live. This language of citizenship, it's, it's a rare word in the Bible. Usually when Paul talks about like behavior, he talks about like how you walk, how you live. But in Philippians, all throughout Philippians, is this undertone of citizenship language. And it's a word which refers both to our belonging and to our living. And actually, earlier in Philippians, in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And in the Greek, he's using the exact same word for citizenship. Let your citizenship, let your civic life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he uses that word, he means for us to live out our identity as the people of God in public life. Our minds and opinions aren't to be conditioned and set in motion by earthly things, but by heaven, by our belonging to Jesus. We are to live as people who belong to Jesus. And the thing is, I don't think that's how many of us tend to think of citizenship nowadays. Nowadays, citizenship just kind of means the country and your passport, Right? But there is a difference between being a citizen of a place and living and practicing out that citizenship. Uh, I remember when I was growing up in England, one of the, the classes I had to take was a class called citizenship. And I have to confess, I did not like citizenship. Um, I remember it, it felt really boring to me, and, and my friends and I came up with another colorful word to, to call that class, which I, I'm not allowed to say from this stage. But the point of the class was to teach us how to be good English citizens. And then when I was 11, my family moved to, to America, and I had to take a very similar class. It was called civics. Actually, it was called civics and economics. It was, a, I guess, like civic life and, and learning about the economy. Uh, and, and similar to my citizenship class in England, I found it really boring. <laughs> uh, they were trying to teach us how to live as good American citizens. And also, I guess, how the economy was meant to work. Uh, I don't know if there's any equivalent to that in the Canadian school system, but the point of those classes was to explain that there's a certain way of behaving and living when you belong to those nations. To be a citizen is not just to have a place to belong, but to adopt a particular manner of living in light of your belonging. There are values, practices, traditions, and beliefs that, that make up what it means to belong to a people. And there's some kind of, of social expectation that in some way we will embody those things and practice them and participate in that way of being as we live as citizens of that land. And the same is true for Christians. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I think those two things, both the citizenship piece and living as a citizen of heaven and knowing Jesus, I think they're both at the heart of our maturity in the Christian faith and also at the heart of what it means to have an integrated faith. At St. Pete's, when we talk about this, this language, this value of integrated faith, we say on our website, from our heads and hearts down to our feet, in our homes and work and everywhere in between, Jesus transforms every part of our lives. And undergirding this value is the conviction and principle that what Christians believe and do is not restricted to what we do on Sunday mornings. To be a follower of Jesus, there's more to it than just going to church on Sunday morning and, and being a part of a community group. The good news of Jesus extends beyond just a few hours in our week, and the claim of Jesus upon our lives extends beyond those moments when we just do the Christian thing. Following Jesus and being his follower means that how we live on Monday and Tuesday is going to look different in some way from how other people live their lives. Our work, our behavior, our relationships and leisure, food, time, technology, sex life, money, politics, hospitality, and hobbies. Jesus touches every single part of our life, and he transforms every single part of our lives too. Because God's goodness isn't detached from our physical and material life. God's goodness isn't detached from our emotions. Instead, God's goodness touches every single part of us. Every part. It's like how water seeps in and fills every crook and cranny and crevice and begins to seep into everything around it and saturates it. We've become like a sponge. I was looking through some of our older materials when we were doing the whole making values process a few years back. Um, I found there were some extra descriptions to go along with all this. And when we talk about integrated faith, what we meant was, first of all, that Jesus is Lord over every part of our lives. So in everything and every place, in what we say and do, we imitate and share his way of life. And integrated faith also means that all the spiritual disciplines and rhythms of our faith sustain and empower our calling and mission to be Christ's ambassadors in the world. It means we serve the common good of all people, Counting others is more significant than ourselves. And it means we actively seek justice, peace, and redemption in our city, sustained by our hope in Christ. And I think we can summarize all of that really well. I think we can summarize that and boil it kind of all down to, to have an integrated faith means that we are seeking to know Jesus. We're seeking to gnosko Jesus in every area of our lives as we live as citizens of heaven here on earth as we live as citizens of heaven here in Vancouver. And the pursuit of knowing Jesus and living as his citizens, I think these two things are the marks of an integrated faith. So that's the vision. It's a beautiful vision. It's kind of a big vision. And if we're honest with ourselves, because it's, it's a vision and it's kind of big and, and hard to reach, it, I'm not sure that's always how Christians live. I'm not sure we always live with this integrated faith. We can struggle with knowing Jesus, can't we? And we can struggle to, to live out our citizenship of heaven here on earth. I know I struggle with this. I, I don't know Jesus the way that I want to. And I don't live out my citizenship of heaven in all the ways that I want to. From my head and heart down to my feet at home and work and everywhere in between, there are places of my life that still need to be transformed by the love and goodness of God. 
As we sit with Paul's words to the Philippians and think about having an integrated faith, I think really what we see is that this is a roadmap for maturing in our faith. Integrated faith is the goal. It's the vision we're striving towards. And Paul even seems to suggest that himself. And in verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straying towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is a journey. This is a journey of our Christian faith as we grow in our faith. We haven't arrived yet. I certainly haven't arrived yet. After getting to an argument with my wife yesterday and realizing my own failures and shortcomings and the ways that I haven't loved her well and the way I'm supposed to, I've got a long way to go. And so did Paul. Paul hadn't arrived yet either. The guy who wrote most of the New Testament confessed that he still had a ways to go in maturing in his own faith, in his own knowing Jesus, in his own living as a citizen of heaven. But what I see in Paul and what he's writing here is that we can grow in this. We can grow. We can seek to grow into an integrated faith. Our faith can mature towards this goal. So I'll try and give a, a framework from this, to, just how to think about how we can grow in our faith. And as we mature, we, we grow both in our knowing Jesus and, and living out as a citizen of heaven. Uh, and if, if integrated faith is the goal, which I want to go this way, if integrated faith is the goal and it encompasses knowing Jesus and living as citizens, then we can map out what this can look like for us. And a quick caveat, I know that models don't cover nuance. I know that models have a lot of limitations, but bear with me. If you're like against models, I'll come back to that at the end. Just hold on for just a few more minutes with me, okay? But in our journey of faith, as we seek to follow Jesus and mature in our own faith, we're going to have what, I'm going to, what I want to call a disconnected faith. Now, by disconnected faith, I don't mean someone who doesn't have any faith. I don't mean people who are seeking to learn more about Jesus as, as they explore faith and Christianity. I think we could just call that exploring faith. I don't, that's probably further down. I don't know how that fits on this properly. Um, but when I say disconnected faith, what I mean is, is our faith doesn't really have feet. Our knowledge of Jesus is, is off. We can have a misguided understanding of who Jesus is. And sometimes that's because we're focused on the wrong kinds of knowledge of Jesus. Either what we know about Jesus is all head knowledge. The, the information about Jesus and the faith, and, and there's no heartfelt experience. Or maybe it's what we know about Jesus is all heartfelt experiences, and we haven't actually tested that in the light of Scripture. And we're not willing to. And if, if I can be honest, I think when I was actually in seminary, learning about faith and how to be a pastor, when I was learning theology, I, I think I felt into the, it's all head knowledge. And I was pretty off balance in my own life and in my faith. And in hindsight, I was really immature in my faith. We need both the head knowledge and the heart knowledge of Jesus. And when they're disconnected, when, when we're off balance, we have this disconnect in our faith. And our knowledge of faith just kind of stays there. Our knowledge of Jesus just kind of stays there. But also, when we've got a disconnected faith, we can also be disconnected when we have a compartmentalized 
kind of faith. Our faith tends to look like a mountaintop spirituality where we ascend to the mountaintop to have this amazing experience. Where we, we go to these events to, to, to meet with Jesus and to encounter him and, and we probably do have real encounters with Jesus in those moments. But it never comes home with us. I've had so many of those. Most of the retreats I went to when I was in college with my, my Christian ministry, I'd say that was a lot of what that was in my own experience. It didn't really change how I lived when I got back home. We go up the mountain and our heads and hearts might be filled up. And then when we come back down, by the end of the week, we've gone back to living exactly how we were living. This is a spirituality that's disconnected from the rest of life. And it's a Christianity that keeps Jesus in a box and doesn't let him transform the rest of our life. When we have a disconnected faith, we have a misguided knowledge of who Jesus is. We don't know him in every part of our life. And we may well desire to know Jesus, but we likely don't know him as well as we suppose. And on our journey of faith, we can also have what I want to call a fragmented faith. And I suspect that this is actually where a lot of us actually are. We're seeking to know Jesus. We desire to know him. But we're often struggling to live as citizens of heaven here on earth. We're struggling to live out our lives, to live our citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I think the reason for that is because we have competing citizenships. Competing citizenships. We've got competing claims upon our lives for who we are. And as a result, we live out competing patterns of conduct and behavior that begin to feel at odds with each other. Does that land? Does that resonate? Our habits and patterns of life, whether the big habits or just the small ones, they, they begin to expose the competing claims upon our heart. And I really appreciate how... Uh, there's this guy named Justin Whitmill Early um, who, who talks about how this worked out in his own life. And he was once a missionary in China, but he, has, he moved back to the States and became a lawyer. And so he's writing as a lawyer, looking at his own life and realizing, my life is kind of off. And I actually felt like he had done a, a backslide in his own faith when he was looking at his life. And a few years ago, he took an honest look at how he was living, and he realized that his habits of his daily life were structured and informed by beliefs and claims he believed and held on to that were actually out of sorts with his Christian faith. And he looks at these habits and the beliefs behind them, and he says, here's my habit. Look at work emails on my phone before getting out of bed. And he realized that the belief behind that was, I can miss a quiet time, but I can't miss a quick response. Unless I'm well regarded in the office, I'm not worth anything. Another habit, if a manager asks for something late in the day on an unrealistic deadline, always say yes. If a social invite comes up, always go for it. And he realized that the belief behind that was, I will become the best version of myself by expanding my options, so I can't say no. I may be tired and busy. My family may be exhausted by my unpredictability. But if I don't preserve my choice, I can't be who I really am. Habit, even when I sense all the above is getting out of control, even when the best word to describe life is scattered or busy, resist any rules that would restrict technology use and work schedules. The belief to limit myself is to restrict my freedom. and I'm not fully human without my freedom of choice in every moment. The good life comes from choosing what you want. Maybe that hits home for some of us. He's got a lot more too, and I found I resonated with this when I was reading his book this week. 
But as he continues, Justin explains that underlying all of his competing citizenships and beliefs was this mistaken belief in freedom. He came to realize that his belief in his own freedom had actually enslaved him with so many choices that he couldn't choose anything well. And it served to blind him from what the good life really was. He had thought that the good life came from having the freedom to do whatever he wanted, but he came to realize that the good life was having the freedom, the ability to do what he was made to do. When we have a fragmented faith, we desire to know Jesus, but we're struggling to live our lives as citizens of heaven. We're struggling to let Jesus transform every part of our life because we have competing beliefs and claims about who we are. And we're holding on to them. Now, I said earlier that this is a framework, this is a model of how we can grow and mature in our faith. And as we pursue and grow in knowing Jesus and as we live out our heavenly citizenship, I think there's a place to to consider this this kind of a, a sketch and model. But the reality is, Models are also kind of artificial, aren't they? There's an artificialness to, to creating a model like this, especially with faith. And the reality is the journey of faith isn't linear. It looks a lot more like this, this scribble, right? It's kind of moving forwards and backwards and up and down. It's, it's like a big knot. It doesn't move in a straight line. The pastor Eugene Peterson, what's described as his own journey in faith, is a bit like a dog that had been let off leash on a street. And began meandering from, from the fire hydrant to lift its leg, and then crisscrossing to the other side of the street to go see the tree, and then crossing back to see the fence, and then going like that back and forth, back and forth. And it was this haphazard meandering journey. But eventually he realized with, with sight, with hindsight, yes, it was this meandering journey, but it was always moving slowly down the same road. All along the way, even though it wasn't a direct path, he was still slowly moving along that road. We're going to have moments in our life when our faith is disconnected. We're going to have moments in our life when our faith is fragmented. And we're going to have moments when it's integrated too. And that's part of the journey. And along the way, we can take steps to move towards Jesus. Steps to know him more deeply. Steps to follow him more closely. But the journey keeps going. The journey keeps going. And we keep meandering along that road going from one tree to the next. I want to turn quickly to uh, what Justin Wilmer early continues to say in his book. Um, He said that when he realized that he was living with a competing belief about, about freedom, he decided he needed to embrace some limits in his life. And so he decided to create these eight habits, these eight rules for his daily life and for his weekly life. There were four daily habits and four weekly habits that he created. He decided that every day he would kneel three times to pray during the day. And he decided that he would make the habit of eating at least one meal a day with someone else. He decided that he would turn off his phone for one hour a day. And he decided that he would make it a priority to read scripture in the morning before he ever turned turned on his phone and looked at it. And then every week, he decided that he would call a friend for one hour. And he would curate his media to four hours total during the week. And he would fast from something for 24 hours and that he would practice the Sabbath. And those aren't crazy things to do, are they? Like, they're not big, difficult things. They're pretty simple, but but those eight practices changed his life. And when I hear what he did, actually, 
I think some language we could use to describe what he did was he created a rule of life. He created a rhythm for his life, a way of being intentional with how he lived in the world. If you remember, I began this sermon with a story about how a man wanted to move a river so he could build a house. And one expert told him that if he wanted to, to move this river to build the house where he wanted, he could bring in all this heavy machinery to dig a channel and to force the river to move. And it was going to take a lot of effort, but, but it would happen. But the other guy took some time to pay attention to the landscape of the land, to look where the river was flowing and to what was going on in the life of that and flow of that stream. And he pointed at a boulder, and he just said, I think if we just move that boulder, the river will flow differently. When we talk about living an integrated faith and living in a manner worthy of the gospel and knowing Jesus and growing in our knowledge of who he is, it can sometimes feel like we need to move a river, can't it? Like we need to, to dig a channel and make all these changes in how we live. But that's pretty drastic. And it's a lot of effort. Effort that can really risk us misunderstanding grace and the importance of grace and the way that God is working in our lives. You probably don't need to dig a channel for a river. You probably just need help seeing a boulder and help moving it. And the patience, help getting the patience to allow God to come and do a slow but good work in your life. As that stream, that river begins to flow differently. Our desire is to have an integrated faith, for us to know Christ and to live as citizens of heaven. Our desire is for Jesus to transform every part of our lives. And so here's my question, as we close our time now. Is there a boulder in the way in your life? Is there a boulder that's keeping you from experiencing this transforming love of Christ in every area of your life? Is there a boulder? Is there a boulder that's keeping you from either knowing Jesus or from living as a citizen of heaven? And if there is, will you ask him for the grace and the courage to move it? What I want to do is I just want to to just have a moment of silence, just to sit with that. Let's just be quiet for a minute, and I'll, after that I'll close this in prayer.